Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we're bringing you a conversation from Fidelity Canada's Vision 2024 event in Toronto. Vision offers insights from our portfolio managers and investment experts and provides their comments on the current market environment, Fidelity's investment process, and our global research network operation. The following conversation is with Fidelity Canada's CIO and Portfolio Manager, Andrew Marchese. He discusses the current state of the market, provides his insights for 2024, and introduces the new Canadian Long Short Alternative Fund. Andrew also shares some slides with the live audience. This conversation was recorded on January 31st, 2024. Hello, everyone. Pleasure to be here. Just a little way of background give you a little bit of insight in preparing for this event. Typically what happens about 30 to 40 days before we actually present, we start compiling some data that we want to use in slides to present to our audience. So for this event today, I started gathering the data probably around the holiday season and building that into the deck, which I hope at the end of the day, the goal is to give you a lot of information about not only our products and our investors, but really to help you answer the most pressing questions uh, for your clients, to make your job easier, to give you greater insight into what we do and give them comfort and ease. And so over the holiday season, I think we all have a little bit more time on our hands. And so in thinking about this presentation, I took a little break, just flipped on the television and to um, my liking and surprise, came on one of my favorite movies, which is Field of Dreams. For those of you who've seen it, no matter how many times I've seen this movie, I will get sucked in each and every time and drop everything. I think it's a brilliant movie. And in watching this, there is a scene towards the end of the movie that is very analogous to the world we're actually living in. And I wanted to use that scene as kind of the backdrop for all of the data that I'm going to present to you today. And it actually builds on, very coincidentally, a lot of the things that you heard from the previous speakers this morning. And so let me just paint this scene for you. There is a young Archie Graham playing on the baseball field in the middle of a cornfield of a farm by the character Ray Kinsella. And he is there and a game will ensue with the legends of baseball like Mel Akil, Hodges, and of course, Shoeless Joe Jackson. A 19-year-old Archie Graham goes to bat against an old grizzled veteran proceeds to wink at the old grizzle veteran, which is not welcomed, and proceeds to get the next pitch aimed at his head, knocking him over. The subsequent pitch does the same thing, comes right at his head, and he barely gets out of the way, to which he is called over to the dugout by Shoeless Joe Jackson. And he says, so what's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen with the next pitch? Well, it's either going to be low and away, or it's going to be in my ear. He says, right, there's two men on. He doesn't want to walk the bases. It's probably going to be low and away. And as he's walking back to the plate, Shoeless Joe Jackson utters, but watch out for in your ear. The low and away pitch is a soft landing that is a general consensus, and you've heard a lot about this morning. The in your ear possibility is something I think everybody has grown a little complacent about. And I'm gonna go into that in a little greater detail. But 
The ensuing pitch was indeed low and away. Archie Graham headed to the outfield for a successful sacrifice fly, a very productive at bat, not unlike the equity markets. Not sensational, but productive. And so with that, let's get right into the presentation as my uh, ninth grade high school drama teacher said to me once when I was auditioning for The Wizard of Oz, she says, you don't sound very great and you're not much to look at, so get on with it. <laughs> so I'm gonna get on with it. So, as I always like to say, these are the only four things that matter with investing. There's a lot of noise, there's a lot of fancy charts, a lot of data, a lot of models, but it all comes back down to these four things. And so we're gonna talk about these, we're gonna spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the North American equity markets, and in particular here, earnings and valuation, okay? And we're gonna talk about how some of the macroeconomic topics that you heard about this morning dovetail and interplay with earnings and valuation. So we're gonna really lock in on kind of the S&P 500 and North American equities in general. And I'm gonna build for you a scenario that I think that where I think consensus may be mostly right, there is a possibility that we've grown too complacent on a tail event. And so when constructing one's portfolios, and you may have heard this a little bit from Ramona this morning, nothing sounds exceptionally table pounding right now, but there are very unique opportunities to make monies in equities on an idiosyncratic or stock picking basis. And so we're gonna cover off that. So just a quick recap for 2023. Listen, it was really bolstered by falling inflation, easing financial conditions late in the year, the Fed pivot that was talked about on December 13th allowed kind of that all everything rally, that kind of beta rally that we saw across the globe. But largely speaking, as we all know, the cap-weighted indices radically outperformed the equal-weighted indices. Market returns were led by the Magnificent Seven. Was that justifiable? Well, historically, the market moves based on earnings and multiple expansion. Those collection of stocks had better than market earnings growth, and as a result, actually really produced a lot of cash, and the mul multiples expanded in kind. So was it justifiable? Probably. Are current valuations a little stretch? Probably. But it always kind of makes sense. You can kind of go look back on it on an ex post basis and you kind of understand why it did what it did. So what's happened is very consistent with a soft landing narrative. People are expecting the Federal Reserve and probably the Bank of Canada to cut rates in this year and they're kind of gearing up for that, right? Increases in liquidity, lower interest rates are generally good for valuation, and they're good for the economy. So you got a two-pronged approach and better corporate profits on the horizon and maybe some multiple expansion. I don't think it's that easy right now, and we'll go into that. But more or less, I would say it is imperative for corporate profits to come through because I think the likelihood of multiple expansion from where we sit today is very, very minimal. We are pricing in some expectations of improvement in corporate profits, and I'm not talking for a select group of tech stocks. I am talking about the larger market. That needs to come through. So as Ramona said, it's going to be a stock picker's market around earnings. And for Fidelity, that's a really, really good place to be in. 
So, but the economic backdrop maybe doesn't look as encouraging. We have low-grade growth, leading economic indicators like the PMI manufacturing and services don't look that great. Manufacturing is still contracting. Last year, I think the reason why the consensus got it wrong on the recession was really one of the reasons was the consumer really hung in there in a very, very big way and dipped into excess savings. And excess savings are completely drawn down now. So it's gonna be even more imperative on the horizon to drop interest rates, maybe to back down to pre-COVID levels and kind of stimulate the economy again on the consumer side. One thing I talked about in the presentation that I gave in Florida back in October is the one thing that didn't confirm a recession and still hasn't is unemployment moving up. And one could, if history was any guide, if unemployment were to move up about 50 basis points off not only a cyclical bottom, but a secular bottom in the United States, one could basically surmise it would be very likely to move up another 200, 200 basis points, that is. That's not cataclysmic, but it does show you if the correlations hold relative to history, there will be pressure on corporate profits ahead. That hasn't happened yet. What's very interesting to note though, if you just kind of detach yourself from the data and listen to some of the corporations talking and what they've posted, in December and January, at least from my impression, there has been an inordinate number of announced layoffs. So it's something that stills still bears watching. And we're gonna go into shortly some of charts and how this has dic been dictated in history. Now, one of the things I, I talked about in the field of dreams analogy was maybe a productive market, if not sensational. If you look on a historic basis, market cycles you know, generally rhyme over time. The leadership generally rhymes based on where we are in early, mid, late or recessionary periods of the cycle. But if you really wanted to put market returns into two buckets and look at the characteristics they share and then kind of allow yourself to think, what kind of environment does the current one most resemble? Well, there's two types of market returns. There's market returns that are really outsized, you know, those 30 plus percent years and similarly, huge drawdowns of 30 plus percent or more. What they have in common, particularly on the upside, is they're led by multiple expansion, either off of a bust, okay? So think March 2003 was the start of a new economic and investment cycle, March 2009. Price leads earnings. We anticipate a multi-year profit cycle occurring. Multiples get ahead of that in kind. The stock market moves before the economy and corporate profits actually show up. Those are usually really, really big years in the market. Okay, it's important to get them right. They're also characterized by beta, small caps, really indiscriminate type stock picking, right? Just own something. Everything's going up. The more speculative, the higher beta, or the smaller cap it is, the more you want to own it. The bigger the bust, the bigger the boom. On the flip side, the other tail, negative, you get both compression and a radical drawdown in corporate profits. The multiple may also compress because of some systemic risk. Let's look at the other bucket. The other bucket is kind of a normalized market outcome. So if you look at 100 plus years of market history, 
and you were to put the histograms of annual 12-month returns into those, it kind of resembles a normalized distribution. And so you're within uh, one standard deviation, plus or minus. Those types of markets tend to be led with the expectation around profits that are either minimally revised and a market multiple that doesn't move a lot. Because you're either there, profits got to grow into it, or expectations that are set forth by analysts on Wall Street and Bay Street are more or less met. Now, going into 2024, the expectations for profit growth for the S&P 500, roughly 11, 12%. Bar set kind of high, coming off a little bit of a profit contraction in 2023. Now, I would argue, if you make that number great, there's probably more upside to the market. Even if that number is negatively revised, which more often than not it is, typically Wall Street analysts are too optimistic coming into any one year, that number is negatively revised. But I would argue if the number is five, six, or 7% earnings growth, market can probably withstand it. Flip side is, if you get into something like two, one, zero, negative, we're not priced for that, okay? And that's why you get in kind of that normalized range, either slightly negative, slightly positive, until we get to the point where the economy gets re-stimulated and you're off to the races again. Keep that in mind. The bigger the bust, the bigger the boom. If you don't have the bust, you really can't have the boom. You kind of just grind along. This current environment feels more like the second, the green box to me. So a couple of risks kind of going out here. And I think part of the reason, once the first one's negative, the second one's positive. The, the, um, I think one of the reasons why everything was cheered so well in December with respect to the Federal Reserve's pivot announcement, if you look at corporate and consumer debt, particularly in this country on the consumer side, in the US it's been termed out a little bit more, but there is a big credit burden coming this year and particularly in 2025. Now, I never thought there was any risk that we wouldn't see interest rate cuts either this year or in 2025. So the worst case scenario from a credit perspective for people having to refi or business having to refi at much higher rates would actually be real. I didn't think that was a real plausible scenario, but I think that was it. If inflation is not dead, and for some reason that, again, nobody is really talking about today, those three interest rate cuts actually never come to fruition this year, this credit problem becomes bigger, much bigger, and it puts risk under everything kind of going forward. It's something to pay attention to. So as I kind of said before, I get very uncomfortable when everybody's kind of reading from the same playbook. And I think we always have to keep in mind things don't always work like clockwork. The other one is probably more of a secular theme around technology. What if this cycle is indeed different? And this cyclical portion is actually being massed in a bigger secular bull market, and it revolves around technology. Somebody alluded to it this morning in terms of increased productivity, which is good for corporate profits, keep inflation under wraps, and you get this disconnect in the future from nominal GDP and inflation. If you look at 
all cycles going back in the post-World War II era, there's about a 72% correlation coefficient between nominal GDP and inflation. You may recall last decade, so from 2010 to 20, was actually the lowest period for economic growth in the post-World War II era. It actually had also one of the lowest inflationary readings over that same 10-year stretch of time. But if technology changes the way we do things, make corporations more profitable and efficient, it may pose a disconnect between inflation, unemployment, and nominal growth, which is a proxy for revenue. So margin expansion. That's a really interesting thought. It's been yet to play out. There are people talking about it, and we'll monitor it very closely as we go and go forward. So into the economy itself, I don't want to dwell on this too much. I want to talk about the economy as it relates to the market and profits. So where do we sit in the economic cycle in the developed nations across the world, very much in the late cycle, okay? And this has been a prolonged late cycle. I talked about consumer spending maybe prolonging that a little bit. There's a host of other factors that have gone into this. But as you know, an economy of a region or country moves along this curve. And what we're trying to do right now, all central banks are trying to do right now, is stave off a recession, or even if it's a recession, hopefully a mild one, and you move right back into the early cycle. That is usually fed by different leadership in the market, right? Early cycle stocks, transportation, consumer discretionary, historically financials, moving to the mid-cycle, right? Industrials, technology, et cetera. So what you're hoping for now, as we you know, kind of sit here today, is that central banks can perfectly navigate a scenario where inflation gravitates to 2%, there's no recession, corporate profits are around 11% growth across the world, and there's no disruption for that. Okay, at the risk of using a cliche, I'll believe it when I see it. That's really tough to do. I'm not saying the opposite is necessarily nefarious, but I talked about if there's an earnings revision scenario that we have in front of us that is maybe away from 11% growth and closer to four, five, or six, that can still be well absorbed by the marketplace. So it'll be interesting to see. This slide, I want to spend a little time on this. I've shown this before, but I want to do it in a little bit of a historical context as it relates to the market. So the dotted lines on here show the real Fed funds rate and how restrictive current monetary policy is. The solid line is the natural rate of interest, the interest rate which perfectly balances inflation and growth. As you can see from this chart dating back to 1983, when the real Fed funds curve is above the natural rate of interest, we live in a restrictive monetary policy backdrop. And that slows spending on the consumer side, uh, corporate profits, CapEx spending, et cetera, et cetera. And how long you're restrictive can actually have big ramifications for the stock market, corporate profits, and thusly market multiples as well. So the question I get all the time is, can you observe the natural rate of interest? Well, not in real time. So how do you know that number is actually, the, the real rate is actually above the natural rate of interest? Well, one would surmise that if it was below, you'd actually have not an inverted yield curve, but a normalized steep yield curve. You would have accelerating GDP. You would have accelerating commodity prices, right? And credit wouldn't be an issue. It'd actually be growing. 
It's not really the environment we have before us. But we talked a lot about a soft landing, and we talk about recessions. So I'm going to point you to two areas in point in time where we did have a recession. 1990, you can see that from the gray bar, and you can see how restrictive monetary policy was at the time. I'm also going to point you to the 2007 period of time. What we had during those periods, in both of those periods, the Federal Reserve was cutting interest rates to the tune in both those periods of anywhere between 100 and 200 basis points before the recession actually showed up. In both those periods of time, the market was going up under the auspices of a soft landing. We did not have all the confirmatory signals of a recession. People thought it naturally wasn't going to happen until it happened. Now, the period of time where you start to see an inversion of a yield curve and the actual recession show up is between seven and 25 months. On average, it's 14 months. We're currently in the 17th month right now. It's not an impossibility. So while we're all, and the consensus is talking about a soft landing, you still have to watch out for in your ear. How was 1994, that mid-cycle 94-95 cycle different? It was restricted for, a, restricted for a long period of time. And that was a soft landing, clearly one. In fact, you know, there were a lot of investors who, who were made, unfortunately made really bad calls on forecasting a recession and got burned for it. We saw five really strong years of a bull market culminating in 2000, and we all know how that ended. What was different about that period of time, the yield curve was never inverted. The hardest part for the equity market historically is when the yield curve becomes disinverted. It does a great job of kind of being optimistic, and then as data may show up, and it becomes disinverted, historically that's when the problems tend to start in the equity market, unless it truly is a soft landing. Okay, so there's a thing here, you have to believe, I think if you believe in the soft landing narrative, you also have to believe in the fact that the yield curve is broken. I personally am not willing to make that bet. I think history matters. So I just wanted to point out these three periods of time that we think, generally speaking, we'll get through this fine. But there are precedents in history, and you don't actually have to look that far back to see three different periods of time where expectations were not unlike what they are now, and two of them didn't end well. So always build the portfolio without putting all your chips onto one side of an outcome. There are a spectrum of outcomes here that we have to consider. And from a multi-asset perspective, not just an equity perspective, you have to build the portfolio with a bit of humility, acknowledging that there are probabilities across the spectrum of outcome that could come to fruition that are very hard to predict. And that, you know, this should be the guiding light around that. So as I mentioned, the soft landing narrative is contingent upon inflation staying low and unemployment staying kind of fine. If unemployment were to move up rapidly, I would argue that the Fed would have to cut harder and faster. So the unemployment bogey kind of tips us off about future corporate profits. The two are tied very closely. 
Okay, that's why I use it as a macroeconomic value, uh, variable to help us with what, generally speaking, corporate profits could look like. But again, for our purposes at Fidelity, we're a bottom-up fundamental shop really striving to, on an idiosyncratic basis, stock pick our way around a broader market. So, as I said, if you get into this rapid cutting environment, there are a lot of stocks that have been already priced that in. This would make this cycle kind of odd, and we'll, we'll show this when we talk about the, like the market behavior and the cap-weighted returns versus the equal-weighted returns. I can go through all 11 gig sectors in the marketplace, and there's not a group of homogenous returns in them. I can find you cheap stocks with no balance sheet risk in one industry, and in that same industry, find you an expensive stock with maybe marginally higher balance sheet risk. It's very hard to explain. What we need to do from our research perspective and our portfolio management perspective is really understand the businesses better, understand where the risks are, and have a firm understanding of what risk is priced in and how much reward we have the potential to receive on a multi-year basis. That's particularly true in a lot of cyclical stocks. And then the flip side, to all of this, that we're just expecting inflation to continue to fall here, and it could very well do that. But it was about 12 months ago where I heard a lot of people saying, well, the move from 8% inflation to 4 would be easy, but 4 to 2 is going to be a real challenge. I don't hear those people anymore. I'm not saying they're wrong or right. I just don't hear them. And that's kind of uncomfortable to me. So there's also something called base effects, right? And we, we know from modeling and whatnot. What if inflation really isn't dead? And you don't have to look that far back to find an analogous period. And it has radical ramifications for the price of risk assets. I'll take you back to 1965. Cycle was fine, kind of went through a tightening phase. And at the first stroke of unemployment moving up, the Federal Reserve started to cut interest rates. And um, all looked good until inflation started rearing its ugly head again and it really started rearing its head again. And then they had to basically take away the easing and go back to tightening. Problem in that is the tightening eventually led to a recession. Fine, except if you're an equity investor. The market actually unraveled so much it erased all the gains you made in the previous five years. If you don't address the problem today, you're gonna to have to deal with it in a bigger way in the future. So I'm not saying this is a likelihood, I'm just saying that's the in-your-ear scenario that you cannot completely discount. Build your portfolio with insurance accordingly. So this chart is the one that bugs me the most in the market. So what this is, it's the market implied policy rates, and we, we put four regions up there, how much the bond market is expecting the, the respective central banks to cut interest rates over the next one and two-year period. Um, you can see from those numbers, we'll start with the U.S. and Canada, you're looking at five to six interest rate cuts for this year. Fed kind of telegraphed three. So why is that? Does the bond market think that corporate profits and the general economy is in worse shape than we all believe? It's about interest rate expectations as it is as much around a forecast. And then you see about another two to three cuts in 2025, that would get us back to levels of interest rates kind of in that pre-COVID area. 
where we had a, you know, a fair amount of disinflation. So maybe it's right. But right now, we have a backdrop, a leading economic indicator backdrop that is commensurate with about or consistent with 1% GDP. We have no signs of systemic issues, right? And maybe consumer spending's at a peak, but there's wealth effect. Everybody's kind of fine. Everybody's employed. But it's something to look out for. This is the one that bothers me the most because I'm wondering if something's worse off than we think. If the bond market's right and the Fed has to really act, it kind of leans me to believe there's going to be something worse in the corporate profit outlook in the back half of this year. But we'll see. This is the one that I still, it, this is the one that keeps me up at night because something, something's not jiving with a general impression of the economy. And if we look at BAA corporate spreads and you look back to those same three periods I talked about, 89, then look back to 94, you look back to 2007 and where we are currently, it's not a lot of risk priced into the market. Now, that doesn't mean something's gonna show up on our doorstep tomorrow, in a week, in a month, or even this year. I'm a big believer in mean reversion. You just don't know when. So if risk is mispriced, think about that in your multi-asset allocation, okay? Diversification will be key because this to me kinda at some point, you need to experience some mean reversion on this front. This is the other one I showed in, in Florida. Um, just basically tells you, you have to go back to 2000 when you know 30 year treasury yields have underperformed the S&P and the NASDAQ by this much. Okay, another thing to think about in the fixed income, I won't repeat, um, fixed income arena, I won't repeat what Stacy and Jeff kind of went into, but again, if you're a believer in mean reversion, something needs to change here. Figure out the scenarios where it could possibly change. So we always get asked about valuation. Valuation doesn't tell you when's gonna, something is gonna happen, it just tells you by how much something could happen at some point in the future. Right now, valuation for me is not a deal breaker. It looks a little high in certain areas of the market, certainly the cap-weighted index. With the S&P north of 20, it's being led by a certain group of stocks that, for both reasonable and unreasonable reasons, have kind of run ahead and been priced up considerably. But where I really um, think you, you have to kind of weigh what is being priced in is going back to that slide on interest rate cuts. If interest rate cuts need to be more aggressive, is the worst really priced in to some things, particularly in a cyclical vein um, in the market? And that will kind of work hand in hand with profits. So as I mentioned earlier, the best years for market returns actually come when you have multiple expansion leading the way by double digit percentage points. It's kind of not the environment we have before us here. Um, those scenarios are like the ones I, I spelled out here for you. The one we're kind of in, which seems more reasonable, is maybe slightly negative revisions over the course of this year, coupled with profits that need to grow into multiples before we reach the next stage, which is a more stimulative environment in the economy from both a liquidity and an interest rate perspective that will catalyze either a new market cycle or just prolong the one, in other words, just kind of a protracted mid-cycle slowdown. So 
What I provided for you here is the equal weighted index. We all know what the cap weighted index is in making new highs for the S&P 500. This is kind of a basing pattern for 18 to 24 months. Hasn't really gone anywhere. I would argue at some point when we're feeling better about the world, the money has to move from more expensive stocks, things like the Magnificent Seven, the things that have kind of been let go, and you will get kind of a rotation, maybe not orderly, but you will get a rotation to have greater breadth in the market. From a portfolio management perspective, we like better breadth. Narrow breadth makes us nervous. It also makes us our job very difficult to stock pick around a benchmark such as this. But we have to remain patient and disciplined about the opportunities that we see before us on price. But the other thing that makes me kind of pause in this whole thing, are we starting a new investment cycle or is it just kind of a, you know, either a mid-cycle slowdown or maybe we're moving into something a little bit more nefarious. Small caps haven't confirmed. They're still about 19, 20% from their highs. This always works when you're embarking on a new investment cycle, economic cycle. And we're kind of moving around, basing out here. So a lot of indecision based on a very difficult environment we're all kind of dealing with. From a valuation perspective, I pointed this out before. The two big ones, information technology and communication services, which have quasi-technology companies in them. The PE is one thing. These are actually trading at negative equity risk premiums. Not a lot of value in there. What Ramona said about looking at things like maybe in energy or more income and yield-bearing instruments kind of looks interesting to me on a relative basis. The visibility of their earnings, dividend streams is extremely high. There's great dispersion within them, as she mentioned, so you can stock pick your way around it, and your risk of losing is small. With the other more expensive stuff, you have a two-pronged approach that eventually the multiples give out on you and the risk of earnings misses becomes higher. And the flip side is the risk to the downside for the price of the stock becomes higher. So as I said back in Florida in October, the interesting places of the market to me look like the things that have been kind of forgotten about. The one thing I would say in financials that didn't come up in Ramona's talk is one thing you have to ask yourself is there's an implicit always cycle to financial stocks. But globally, I wonder if we're in a secular decline in return on equity for a lot of these stocks. We've seen it in Europe. I wonder if it might also be happening in Canada. And if it happens on a secular basis, that means over time, how you should measure these things is not a PE multiple, but a price to book multiple. And that will compress as a secular ROE becomes lower. So it's one thing to think about with respect to bank stocks. So the takeaways are here, earnings matter. The profit cycle will have the greatest impact on the direction of the market this year. Eventually, if we start a new market cycle, it will be catalyzed by more of those macroeconomic variables that I talked about. Keep your portfolio high graded. The Magnificent Seven, yes, we've talked about them, they're expensive, but one thing they have in common, and you saw this actually last decade as well, when growth became scarce, large cap growth stocks really worked. Why? They had business models that worked and threw off a lot of cash, kind of industry take all certain companies. There's a real reason why they worked. So if we're heading back to that kind of scenario pre-COVID where it's lower growth, lower inflation, any company that is of high quality 
from an earnings perspective and a balance sheet perspective that really chews off a lot of cash, they will more than likely have their multiple expanded. It's not a great environment when you hear about the market, but we like to not refer to the stock market as a stock market, but rather a market of stocks. Ton of idiosyncratic opportunities ahead of us. I agree with Ramona 100%. This is a great year for stock picking, but patience and discipline is imperative. And this also came up with the GAA guys, David Wolf and David Tulk and Alon. The, the correlation between bonds and equities, particularly as of late, is encouraging the need for more decorrelated or uncorrelated asset classes. The other thing, because of the nature of the equity markets, our liquid alternatives and the employment of shorting, I think, opens up advisors, our clients, our prospects to taking advantage of the full suite of Fidelity Canada's research. I think that's very powerful. It will allow us to exploit opportunities from an idiosyncratic stock selection that we otherwise cannot do in long-only portfolios. And so with that, I will conclude my statements and I'll leave you with a clip from the movie. Just remember, we're planning for one thing, but you cannot always disregard something that could come out of left field. Thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure as always. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.